Oh, good morning, everyone. Um, it's actually really cool that in this picture or experience that uh, Linka just said, it, it kind of ties in very nicely with what I want to share on, especially that, that reality of that God is more real than the water dripping or more real than the wind blowing. Yeah, just, just keep that in the back of your mind um, as I'm going to be sharing. Um, so I'm going to start with a bit of a question. So have you ever had this experience? You want to sit down and get some proper work done. Maybe you've got a project that you need to work on or there's a deadline that you need to be pushing for. Or maybe even more noble than that, you want to have some quiet time. You want to sit and seek the Lord. And then before you find it, before you know it, you've got the phone in your hand and you just quickly want to check if there wasn't maybe a notification that came in. Or maybe just quickly check what's the latest news updates. Or maybe just watch one more YouTube video before you actually start working on this project. And uh, the reality is, in that moment, you have certain good intentions. You've got a certain idea of what you want to do. And these are good things. You want to work and want to seek the Lord. But your heart or your desires end up pulling you in a different direction. It, it actually drives your actions to do something contrary to what your intentions are. So this is actually not a new thing. I'm sure all of us have experienced this. Um, Paul, I think, experiences a lot. He actually writes, has quite a lot to say about this. So I'm going to take us through a bit of a journey of he um, has to say about this topic. But um, yeah, first of all, Paul picks up in uh, Galatians 5, and, and he uh, uses some Christian language to try to explain this. In, in certain translations, it talks about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the spirit. And uh, obviously, these are more Christianese terms, like what does it actually mean? Now, just to briefly explain before we read the passage. So the lust of the, of the spirit, that is the desires that the spirit gives you after you're born again, when you being filled with the Holy Spirit, and then you're being made into a new person, and you've got new desires and new things that you want to do. These are the, the desires of the Spirit or the lust of the Spirit. And then you have the lust of the flesh, which is your human nature, your, your unregenerated self, which is often selfish and sinful, and it's uh, what do I get out of it, what makes me feel nice, and not really the desires of the Spirit. And what he's saying is that these two are contrary to one another, and there's actually a battle going on between the two of them. So we can go to Galatians 5, verse 16, and then I'll just read two verses there. Okay, so he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the, the, desires of the flesh. So the, the idea of walking by the Spirit, it's essentially just you have these desires of the Spirit, and you walk in them. You actually walk it out what the desires are telling you. So if you do that, you walk in the Spirit, you will not desire, gratify the desires of the flesh. And he says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another, so that you uh, that keeps you from doing the things that you want to do. And there you see the thing that I was just mentioning. You've got certain things that you want to do, and this battle that's going on between the flesh and the spirit actually keeps you from doing the things that you want to do. Uh, we see a similar idea in uh, Romans 7 verse 15, where Paul writes, and he says, uh, I'm struggling to get the thing open on my side. It says, um, I don't really understand myself. For what I want to do, well, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. So he says, I, I don't understand what's going on. Like, there are these things that I want to do, and, and, and these things that I want to do are actually the good and right things. But then what I find myself doing is not the things that I want to do. I actually end up doing the things that I hate. Now, what's going on here? So he elaborates this a bit, and then finally in Romans um, 8, verse 5 to 7, he kind of gives a bit of a answer or a solution to this problem. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Okay, so he's now taking it one step further. Initially, it was just that the, the spirit has desires, the flesh has desires. And these are contrary to one another. Then he says that if you live according to the spirit, in other words, you fulfill those desires, you are actively setting your mind on the things of the spirit. And if you are walking in the flesh, you are actively setting your mind on the things of the flesh. So instead of just walking it out, he's now talking about this action that you're taking where you are deliberately setting your mind on something. Now, this is maybe a little bit more helpful, but it's still very vague to me. Like, what does it mean to set your mind on the things of the spirit or set your mind on the things of the flesh? So thinking about these things, or I don't know, it's a, it's a bit vague still to me. So in Colossians 3, verse 1 to 3, kind of gets a little bit closer to how do you actually do this, setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. It says, for if then you have been raised with Christ. So in the chapter just before that, he was talking about baptism, and he was saying that in baptism, we identify with Christ's death. Like as you go under the water, it's almost as if you die with Christ, and as you come out of the water, it's as if you've risen with Christ again. So he's now kind of going on the back of that. If you've been raised with Christ, in other words, if you're a believer, if you have given your life to Jesus, then seek the things that are above. So he's now taking this in a different context. Seek the things that are above. Now, if you seek something, just think about, let's say you lost something, I don't know, take my ring. Let's say I lost my ring somewhere in the house. And um, <laughs> it's obviously a very important thing to me. I'm not going to just like, oh, okay, look around. Oh, no, I don't care anymore. I'm going to turn the tables around. I'm going to look under the, the couches. I'm going to look everywhere until I find it. I'm going to seek it. There is a, a deliberateness and a pursuit of the thing that I'm actually seeking. It's not just a quick glance and then it's done. So he says, though if you are a Christian, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things of above. There we again say, see this idea of setting your mind, setting your mind on the things of above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So he's talking now about this deliberate idea of setting your mind on the things of above where Christ is. So that is what it means to set your minds on the things of the Spirit. It's to set your mind on the realities and the glories of God, on reminding yourself of what Jesus has done, who he is, his glory, his beauty, his nature. We've been singing this morning uh, in worship so nicely about all the attributes of God. Um, setting your mind on these things, thinking about these things, meditating on these things, that, it, that is what it means to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Okay, so that's now a little bit more helpful as to what I do, but how do I actually set my mind on the things of above, on the things of the Spirit? Because I can't actually see it. <laughs> it's easy to set your mind on something that I can see. For example, if I'm doing some work, if I'm building something, I set my mind on that task because I can see it and I can engage with it. But now I'm talking about something that is unseen, that is not possible to physically, tangibly see and experience in a tangible sense. And, and it kind of reminds me of the story. There's this uh, classic story of a, a dad trying to put his kid to bed. And the kid is saying, um, hey, daddy, I, I'm, I'm having nightmares. And there's like a monster in my closet or whatever. And then the dad says to the kid, hey, don't worry, son. Jesus is going to be right here with you all night. Don't worry. Jesus is right here with you. And then the kid says, daddy, I know that Jesus is with me. But right now I need Jesus with the skin on. And that is, that is all of us. We we so often feel like, if only I can have Jesus with the skin on. <laughs> if only we could have him physically here. And one day we will. I think our hearts are longing for that reality where we're headed towards. That one day we will be in his presence. We will see him face to face. And we won't have to look in a mirror dimly anymore. We will see him in his full glory. 
But right now, on this side of eternity, we have this struggle, but actually also a privilege to go the step further and actually see with faith instead of just going by um, what we can tangibly, tangibly experience. Now, have you ever wondered why God has given you an imagination? Like, why did he create you with the capacity to imagine things? I, I actually personally think it is so that we can see the unseen things, so that we can connect our hearts to the unseen realm. I think that is one of the main reasons why he's given us imagination. And, and with that, I don't mean that we make up God, that we fabricate something that's not true. I'm talking about putting your, um, fixing your eyes on the realities of the unseen realm. And I'm going to go a little bit into that right now. For now, just in Hebrews 11 verse 1, it says, this is a very classic passage, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, or the evidence of things not seen. It, in, in another translation it says, For faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So if I can put it in a different way, you can almost say that faith is the, um, is the ability to see the realities of the unseen realm and then putting your trust in those things. Faith is the ability to see the realities of the unseen realm and then putting your trust in those things. None of, none of us have seen Jesus crucified physically hanging on the cross. We, we're too far beyond that to have, be, have been able to be there physically. So we see with our mind's eye, we see in, with the eyes of our heart, Jesus crucified, and then we put our trust in that reality of the transforming nature of that. So that is where faith comes in. Faith is the ability to see the things of the unseen realm and then putting your trust in it. Just to carry on, it says, for by, by it, by faith, the people of old received their accommodation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. I'm going to read it in a different translation as well, that last verse. Faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. What we now see, the physical realm, did not come from anything that can be seen. Just think about that for a second. That means that the unseen realm is the foundation out of which the seen realm came. So the unseen realm is actually more true, more real, more foundational than the seen, seen realm that we're living in. And if you also just think about it, God is, Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. If God is spirit, that means he's not physical matter, he's not material, he's not in the physical realm, he's in the spiritual realm. And that is from where he created everything. So everything that we see around us is actually from the unseen realm. And we should put our focus and our attention on that reality, which is actually more foundational, more core to what is real than what we experience on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, just, just a little bit of a side note here. Um, I think um, I'm, I'm in the scientific field. I'm an engineer. And I think one of the main issues that science is having is they're trying to prove the existence of God by using science. And that is a fundamental flaw because science is concerned with what you can measure. You can set up some experiment, make some observations, and like do this experiment and get some results. And that is what science is concerned with. But all that science can do is it can measure the tangible, the physical, the material world. Science can't measure the unseen realm. So if you're trying to use science to prove the existence of God, you're on a fool's errand because you won't be able to do that. Um, things that are maybe more useful studies if you want to prove the existence of God are things like philosophy, theology, archaeology, history, or whatever. 
to at least create a foundation for a faith that is reasonable and logic that it's not just we have blind faith, we actually have a reasoned out faith. But ultimately, I believe that the most powerful thing to prove the reality and the existence of God is our personal experience that we have with him. When you encounter God, there is something that fundamentally changes in your life. If you see God with the eyes of your heart, you are continually being transformed into the reality or, or into the same image as Jesus. It is not just the material side that you study and then find God. You actually have to see with your eye, the eyes of your heart to find God. Okay, so I've, I've been saying now that imagination is one of the gifts that God has given us to be able to see into the unseen realm. So it's not a surprise then that the enemy has spent quite a lot of time to, to attack our imagination um, or to destroy our imagination. So there are two main ways it does this. So the first one is he, he warps it or he twists it so that we use its ability to imagine things um, to indulge our own sinful desires or pleasures. So one classic example is the guy undressing the girl with his eyes. Like he's using his imagination to feed his lust. Another one is you daydreaming about what could be or what could be nice things or discontentedly essentially like, oh, I wish I had that thing that that person has or I had or just think how nice my life would have been if it was like this or that. So you actually feed your discontentment by daydreaming about the things that God hasn't given you. And then the another one is, uh, another example is um, worrying, about everything, worrying about everything that can potentially go wrong. Just thinking about all of the things, how things can fall apart and things can just go poorly in the situation. Now sometimes that's a good thing, that's a good caution, but it can be driven to the extreme where you just drive yourself into anxiety and fear the whole time and you don't actually trust God properly anymore. So, yeah, that is quite a competition that's going on here. <laughs> so, what what he does is, in, in, my, in summary of that point, um, he drives our imagination to focus on the things of the earth. So, he sets our minds on the things of the flesh. That is what the enemy does with our imagination, to imagine and drive our imagination to the things of this world. Now, the second thing that he does is that he numbs our imagination by overstimulating it with media. Now, whether it's social media or watching movies or series or whatever, he uses these things to overstimulate our minds so that we don't actually have the capacity to use our imagination anymore. Um, I mean, like, just think about it. We don't often read books anymore uh, where you have to imagine the characters and the settings and the scenes and, and how things play out. We just watch a movie or just watch the series. Now, I know a lot of us do still read books, but the reality is if you just see the video, you don't have to imagine anything, it's given to you. And there was actually this interesting study done by the University of um, Staffordshire in the UK where they took 60 children of age three and then they uh, exposed one group to 15 minutes of television, you know, watching a kid's show, and then the other group, uh, they just would go on normal in life. And then they, directly after that, they tested them. They said, okay, well, try to do this activity where you actu actually had to apply some creativity and use your imagination. And they found a marked difference between the kids that just watched 15 minutes of television versus those that didn't. Now, it's a temporary effect, but there was a very clear difference between the ability of these kids to apply their imagination after being exposed to some form of media. And if we think, as adults, we're not affected by the same kind of experience, we're fooling ourselves. Like by overstimulating ourselves with media the whole time, we lose our capacity to use our imagination to see into the unseen realm, to actually see the realities of God. And if you don't have the ability to see the realities of God anymore, then or to see, see Jesus for that matter with the eyes of your heart, how will you believe him 
as you ought. I'm going to say that again. The enemy numbs our conscience, uh, not our conscience, our imagination, so that we can no longer see Jesus with the eyes of our heart. And if we can no longer see Jesus with the eyes of our heart, how will we believe in him as we ought? Paul actually prayed in Ephesians 1 verse 18. He said, um, he prayed that the, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now, again, there's a bit of Christianese in there, like the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. It sounds so lofty. But it's just saying that I pray that your eyes would be able to see again the realities and the glories of Jesus. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened, enlightened again, so that you can clearly see. You see, the problem is not that we need to see more of Jesus in our physical lives. It's not that we need to see more of how he operates and what he does, and we need to see Jesus face to face to be able to believe in him. We actually need to train our eyes to see him more and more in the spiritual sense, like see him with our, uh, with our spiritual eyes more clearly. If we see him more clearly, we will actually believe him. We will, we will be transformed into that reality of who he is. And the, the thing that Jesus called Thomas is actually still relevant to us. So, so just the story of Thomas, um, after Jesus rose again, he appeared to the surviving disciples, but Thomas wasn't among them. And uh, then the other disciples told Thomas when he came back, hey, listen, Jesus just appeared. He rose from the dead. And uh, Thomas is like, no, I don't believe you guys. Like, uh, I'll have to see him personally and put my fingers in his wounds before I will believe that he actually rose from the dead. And then later, Jesus, being faithful, he appeared to all the disciples with Thomas being present. And then Thomas obviously believed in Jesus. But then Jesus made this remarkable statement. He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that is all of us. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So if you are able to see, if you have seen him, you are among the blessed that is able to see and still believe, um, see with the eyes of your heart and still believe. Okay, now to see Jesus, um, we must be able to see with the eyes of our heart. And uh, this is actually a little bit hard <laughs> to do. And the reason why it's hard is due to the, the struggles that we have um, in life, namely uh, dopamine, which I'll discuss now, and the fact that we're living in a bit of a microwave culture. So um, first of all, dopamine. Dopamine is, a, is your friend. It helps you to form habits and things like that. But it can also be your enemy. It's, it's, a, um, it's a neurotransmitter that essentially acts as the reward system in your brain. So whenever you do something um, that's good or pleasurable, then dopamine gets triggered and you get this reward and you feel good about it. And it's actually quite addictive as well. That's how habits are formed because you keep going after it. Um, now, it's, uh, if you just think about it in the historical sense of where it would have been very helpful for the survival of humankind, let's say you are walking in the field and you find this tree and there's some fruit on the tree and you eat the fruit and because of the sugar in the fruit, you um, get some dopamine triggered in your brain. And what that dopamine says is, hey, listen, what you just did, this was good. Like, you need to do this again. And it's necessary because if you don't do that again, you need the energy in the fruit to be able to survive. So <laughs> this is a survival thing almost as well as saying like, Remember what you did. Go back there again. This is good for you. This is, this is a, a good thing that you should keep, do, keep on doing. Now, the problem is we've hijacked this a little bit with refined sugars and stuff, where now we are so, like, sugar is just everywhere available to us. So whenever we, we feel a little bit down or whatever, we just go and get some sugar and we get this dopamine hit um, because it's just there. It's the, what was supposed to be for survival. Now it's just everywhere. Um, another thing is all of these social media, YouTube, Facebook, whatever, all these things trigger similar dopamine responses in our brains. So these are rewards that we get for every time when we do essentially nothing. When I watch a movie, I get dopamine triggered, and I don't actually do anything. I just sit there. So th that's kind of, could, it could be a bit of a, a problem. 
um, because then it takes away from your ability to do the hard things because you're constantly being rewarded for doing nothing. So to do the hard things which actually require effort, it becomes a lot harder. And this is exacerbated or made worse by the fact that we're living in a microwave culture where everything is instant. If I want my food to be heated up, I put it in the microwave for a minute, beep beep, there it is, it's warm, I'm ready, it's ready to be eaten. Um, and then just after that, I go to seek God and I'm on my knees for one minute and I'm like, God, where are you? Like, why haven't you shown up yet? The problem is we've gotten so used to these instant quick fixes and we've overstimulated ourselves um, to get constant dopamine that to do the hard things is not really worth it anymore, especially if it's unseen things. So there's this, let's say, talk about prayer. In the New Testament, there's this uh, phrase where it talks about praying earnestly. And the word earnestly means to pray stretched outwardly or praying with the entire being engaged or intensely is another way you could say it. Now, if you think about it, Praying intensely means that you're putting your entire being involved in this activity of focusing your attention on the unseen realm. That is hard. <laughs> We're not used to doing that as much anymore, to put our entire being into focusing on things that cannot be seen. Yet Jesus says, knock and keep on knocking, seek and keep on seeking, and then the door will be opened and then you will find. The, the problem is that we want to seek once and we want to uh, knock once and then we want the door to be opened. The seek and keep on seeking is where we get stuck. Like, where is our perseverance? Where is our endurance to keep on pushing through? We don't get an immediate dopamine hit from seeking. We only get an eventual reward if we keep on seeking. So we must be aware of this struggle. That's, that's just, it's not so much a solution yet. It's just a, be aware that you're fighting against dopamine um, and use it to your advantage. So then how do we address this um, urge or this craving that we have to indulge in, in media the whole time. Now, now, for some of us, we, we actually need to maybe make some hard choices. We need to cut out some things out of our life, just purely because it's not helpful. Um, maybe for a week, maybe for a month, just so that we can normalize our dopamine levels a bit, so that we can, again, do the harder things of seeking God, putting our attention on the things above, setting our mind on the things above, will become easier if we're not so numbed by not getting immediate rewards from doing that. So, some of you might be feeling, and I, I'm sure in some areas I'm saying the same. It's like, no, I don't really have such a big problem with this. I mean, like, I can stop at any time to watch these things or do this or whatever, which sounds like every smoker ever. It's like, uh, you know, I can quit at any time. <laughs> the, 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 the challenge is just try it. <laughs> try quitting. See if you can. I, I think uh, in, in the trying to quit, you'll realize how much control this thing actually has over you. In the, in the trying to stop something that you think is, is going to be easy, you will see how quickly your heart gravitates back to that. And uh, Paul addresses this, uh, this experience a little bit in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12. Um, and, and there he's kind of addressing one of the sayings that the Corinthians had where, where they said, you know, I can do anything. Like it's kind of all things are permissible. Um, in Christ I'm free. I can kind of do whatever I want. Wait, don't, don't do this thing. Uh, come on, now the thing's not opening. Let me just uh, try one more time. It says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. Not everything is good for you. Not everything is actually a good thing to do. Even though you may do everything in Christ, not everything is actually good for you. Then he carries on. He says, you say that I have the right to do anything. I can do, I'm allowed to do anything. But then Paul's response is this. I will not become a slave to anything. I will not be controlled by anything. I will not be mastered by anything. As soon as you no longer have the choice in the matter to when you want to work and you feel this urge to pick up your phone, once you no longer have the control to be able to say, no, I'm going to actually be working, 
you're slightly being controlled by that thing. You're a slave to your phone to, be, to actually pick it up when that urge falls. So this is what Paul is saying. He's saying that it's not sin. It's not inherent sin to watch YouTube or, or Facebook or uh, pick up your phone or whatever. But if you're being controlled by that thing, this is not actually a good thing anymore. You, you need to identify this, that this is actually not a good thing. And uh, it's, it's sometimes it's going to take a bit of a harshness in our response to this. In, in Matthew 5, verse 29, Jesus kind of addresses the idea of lust. But then he, he says that if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, obviously, it's not talking about physically plucking out your eye. That's not going to take away the lust. It's talking about dealing harshly with the experience that you're having. If you see there's a problem, deal harshly with it. Don't just like, okay, I'm going to maybe try to see like if this happens. If it doesn't, oh well. Realize that there is something, a battle to be fought here. There's something that you need to put the stake in the ground and say, up to here and no further. And then something that has kind of been helpful for me to identify what things need to be limited or cut out is um, Psalm 101 verse 3, where the psalmist writes, um, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I'm just going to stop there. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Now, if you look at the word worthless, it's, it's talking about something that doesn't have profit, something that doesn't profit anything or something that could be destructive or wicked or just plain worthless. But I like the idea of it's without profit. It's not actually contributing anything to my life. So why would I actually indulge in it if it's not contributing anything? It's, it's without profit. And I think we should, again, call out worthless things for what they are. I think we should call out worthless things for being worthless things. Because we, we so often say, yeah, no, it's, it's fine. It doesn't hurt anyone. Sometimes things are just plain worthless. There's no point for us as Christians to indulge in them. And we must also be quite proactive with, with what enters our heart. There's a um, very classic verse in Proverbs 4, verse 23, where it says, um, guard your heart, for from it flows all the issues of life. It's, uh, it's often used in terms of relationships, a guy liking a girl, and it's like, oh, I must guard my heart. It, it's the, what much wider than that. You must guard your heart of everything that flows into it, because from it will flow the issues of life. This is idea in, in engineering. I'm sure it's in other fields as well. But in engineering, we say garbage in, garbage out. If I want to analyze some data and get some results from it, if I put garbage data in and then run it through my model and try to get the results, I'm going to get garbage results out. If I could put good data in, I'm going to get good results out. The problem is not the model. The problem is not our hearts. The problem is what we put into it is going to cause garbage to come out. The problem is if we put garbage into our heart, we're going to get garbage coming out of our hearts. So we must guard our hearts. It's, it's, we must put a wall in front of our hearts to not allow um, certain things which we identify as worthless things to enter into our hearts because then worthless things will flow out from our hearts. So kind of a bit of a summary uh, of what I've been talking about. It, it's, um, this is battle going on in our lives between the lust of the spirit and the lust of the flesh. These two are contrary to one another. They're irreconcilable. They, we can't actually bring them together and say, you know, just a little bit of the one, a little bit of the other. It's we need to walk according to the spirit. We need to um, be led by the Spirit and set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And how do we do that? We set our minds on things above and focus where Christ is and, and realities of Jesus. And we do that by focusing on the unseen realm, by using our imagination. The problem is that the enemy has kind of hijacked our imagination and used it against us for selfish purposes or by numbing it and actually kind of giving us a dopamine overdose so that we can no longer actually do the hard things. And we must... Be very deliberate to then deal harshly with these things to 
break ourselves free from the addictions of these worthless things. So that's kind of the summary of where I've gotten up to now. And I'm just going to read a quote and then one more thought, and then I'm going to end with a story. Um, and this quote is from Paul Tripp. And um, he's, he's, he wrote this book. Um, the book's name is All Why It Matters for Everything You Think, Say, and Do. And he says that he realized that awe, or thinking that something is great or amazing, or it's just that awe is not just a nice word, um, the awe of something is the bottom of everything that he says and do. So he realized that everything in his life was guided by this awe, but that we were actually created for the awe of God, not for the awe of these other things. So then he, he breaks it up in talking about vertical awe that we have towards God and horizontal awe that we have towards the things of this world. So I'm just going to read the quote. He says, the problem is that we replace vertical awe, or awe that we have for God, thinking that he's amazing and great, with horizontal addiction. I'm deeply persuaded that much more than often than we think, true worship is replaced by obsession. So true worship of God is replaced with obsession. And even let's just take the worship of this morning. How often are we more feeling like, ah, I don't really like this song, or oh, this is not really my style of music, or whatever. It's like we're actually obsessed with certain forms of things. We're not actually focusing on God. We're not worshiping God anymore. Our hearts are no longer connected with the vertical, or we're focusing on the horizontal experience of things and what's actually going on here on the day instead of focusing on Jesus. And the music is supposed to facilitate our focus on Jesus. It's not supposed to tickle our we're feeling nice. Like It's not supposed to release some dopamine of, oh, this is such nice music. So, yeah, I'm going to carry on with the quote. <laughs> Um, when my heart is enamored with the stunning glory and utter unchangeability of God, when I'm living in conscious awe of him, I have no need to look uh, vigilantly for life day after day. He says if he's so enamored with God, if his, his attention and everything, his focus is so on God, he realizes he doesn't really even need to go and analyze his life and micromanage it to try to get all the little details right in his life because this is the place where he's satisfied and these other things kind of automatically fall into place. He says, I'm living in the conscious awe of him. Uh, oh no, no, sorry, I, 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 no need to, I have no need to look vigilantly for life day after day. Vertical awe puts my heart at ease. It gives my soul rest. It produces contentment and satisfaction. On the other hand, horizontal awe is obsessive and addictive because the things to which I'm looking have no ability at all to give me what God can give. At best, the buzz of these things is short-lived. And because it is short-lived, I have to go back to it again and again. And because I have to go back to it again and again, I'm looking for it all the time. And because it doesn't ever really satisfy me, I need more and more of it, uh, of whatever it is giving me, this buzz that I'm seeking, because the physical created world will never save me. I can never it can never provide lasting rest for my heart. And it kind of reminds me of, of one of the, again, quoting Paul here in Romans 1 verse 25, where Paul uh, kind of addresses people that have given themselves up like giving themselves entirely over to this way of living. It says, they've traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things of God instead, um, the things of, the, sorry, sorry, worshiped the things that God created. Sorry, they worshiped and served the things that God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise, amen. So they've traded the worship of God with the worship and serving of things that God created. And, and that is something that we have to guard against. It's a natural way that people's lives go. Is we start to gravitate to the things we see, we start to worship those things, instead of worshiping the true God. Now, I'm convinced of this, that if we can train our eyes again to see Jesus clearly, then everything will change. And Second uh, Corinthians 3 verse 18 kind of gets a little bit to that reality. It says, and, uh, and 
we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so as we're beholding the glory of Jesus, we are being transformed into the same image. It's, uh, in, in certain translations, it says, like, as we behold this glory as a mirror, it's like we're the mirror reflecting the glory of God to others. But as we behold him, like, as we position ourselves, if you want to reflect the light of the sun, you have to position the mirror towards the sun to be able to reflect that light properly. If we position ourselves to look at the sun, to look at the glory of Jesus, then we will start to reflect the glory of Jesus in our lives. Just a final quote before I tell my story. It's uh, um, David Platt. He says that, um, you don't become like Christ by beholding TV all week. You don't become like Christ by beholding the internet all week. You don't become like Christ when you fall your life with the things of this world. Instead, you become like Christ when you behold the glory of Christ, and you expose your life moment by moment to his glory, all through God's revelation in Scripture. I think the, the problem that we're having is that, um, I actually had this experience in, in Israel when we were there. There was a, a Jew that was saying that, you know, the problem with the Christians are that you worship a six-foot-tall God. We Jews, we worship a God that is infinitely large. He holds the universe in the palm of his hand. He's, he's immeasurable. Your God is only six foot tall, talking about Jesus, obviously. Um, now, he, he did have a bit of a fundamental misunderstanding of Christian doctrine, but that's, that's kind of put aside. There is a truth in what he is saying. He, he is saying that we often so easily get caught in this idea of what Jesus looks like on earth, when he was on the earth for 33 years. When you forget that Jesus was God for all eternity and will be God for all eternity. And just for 33 years, he limited himself and limited his glory while he was on earth. And we put all our attention in those 33 years in saying this is who God is. And the reality, if we want to see who Jesus really is, it's, it, it doesn't look like the actor in The Chosen. <laughs> that's, that's what he looked like for those 33 years possibly. But he is better described in Revelation 1 verse 12 to 18. I'm just going to read this here. It says, John, uh, John is now speaking. He says, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven broad lampstands. And um, standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, someone that looked like a man. Um, he was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. And this is now where the description of actually Jesus comes in. His head and his hair were light, white like wool. When you imagine Jesus, do you see someone with hair as white as wool, as white as snow? And his eyes were like flames of fire. When you think about Jesus, do you see flames of fire in his eyes? His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. His, he held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. A sword coming out of his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as one that was dead. This is John, who was, John the disciple who was lying on the chest of Jesus. Now he sees Jesus, unveiled glory, and falls at his feet as one dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm li the living one. I died, but took, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. Now, it is very true. We must go and sit on, on the Father's lap. And there is this reality and position that we have to place ourselves in. But we can't also diminish the greatness and the glory of our God. He's not just a six foot tall man that walked on the earth. He is God infinite in the unseen realm that created all things and that holds all things together. Now, to end with my story, um, I'm just going to kind of try to paint a bit of a mental picture. And as I'm sharing the story, I, I pray that uh, you would just, in your heart, something would be moved again to desire Jesus and, des and realize what he has done again for us.
so that you would invest the time and the effort that it's going to require to um, let go of worthless things, but then to put your attention and focus and set your mind on the realities of Jesus. So I'm going to kind of just take a song. This is a song by Jan de Wet. It's uh, called Kijk naar die lam, uh, which roughly translates to look at the lamb. Um, and he tells the story. The song is essentially just one long story. And, and he tells the, the story in the song of a dad with his two kids that's, that's on their way to Jerusalem in the day of Jesus. And they're on their way to celebrate the Passover festival. So they've got a little lamb with them because uh, to celebrate Passover, you have to have a lamb of one year old that's without spot or blemish. Um, maybe just a little bit of history on Passover just to make the picture more full. Um, Passover originated in Egypt when the Israelites were in Egypt uh, as captives. And then God sent 10 plagues through Moses to um, eventually get the Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And the final, the 10th plague was that all the firstborn in Israel would be killed. Uh, in Egypt, sorry, all the firstborn in Egypt would be killed, and that included the Israelites. So God gave a means by which they can be protected. He said, take a lamb that's one year old, that is without spot or blemish, that's perfect, the best of your flock, and then slaughter it. So obviously this is, would have been good for you if you could have kept it in your pocket. You have to slaughter it and take its blood and put it on your doorposts. And then when God comes, when the destroyer comes to kill the, the uh, firstborn of everyone in Egypt, and he sees the, the blood on the doorpost, he will pass over those houses and the people in those, that house would be saved. And then God said, you must celebrate this as a, a festival every single year um, on the 14th of Nisan, which is one of the Jewish months. And it was one of the main festivals in the Jewish calendar where everybody from the entire region would come to Jerusalem for this festival. It was a big event. Um, so this, this dad and their two kids, they're now coming from a distant place to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And they've got the lamb with them. And the dad tells the kids, look after this lamb because obviously this is a very valuable lamb to us, but you need to go now sacrifice it for this feast, uh, festival of Passover. And uh, so he says, but kids, look after the lamb, make sure nothing happens. So they get to Jerusalem and then there's lots of people there. It's, it's very, very crowded. And, and he realizes, okay, this lamb has a, has a chance of getting lost. So he tells his kids again, kids, look after the lamb. It's very important. Keep the lamb safe. And then he goes a little bit deeper, and then he realizes something is not right here. And the next moment, he hears someone cru uh, shout out very loudly, crucify him, crucify him. And he's, that is a little bit shocked. He's like, this is Passover. Could anyone do something to stop this craziness from happening? Like, we're here to celebrate something beautiful, and now this chaos is going on. And then as he's still processing this, he sees three men carrying crosses, walking past. And the first one is just begging for mercy, but the people just mock him. They don't care. The second one, he's like shouting and screaming and cursing. And he's just, uh, as he's still processing this guy, here someone says, look, there is Jesus. And as he turns to look where Jesus is coming, he, he's, he's completely shocked. He's like, how can someone ever possibly be beaten and tortured so badly? In fact, in, in Isaiah 53, it says that um, he was so disfigured that we didn't even think he looked like a man anymore. So that is the torture that he saw in Jesus. And, and as he's still kind of looking at this man that is so tortured, Jesus. Um, Jesus starts to, like, he just can't bear the weight of the cross anymore. He just collapses under the weight of the cross. And in a moment of almost compassion, this dad jumps forward to see if he can help. And as he does this, a Roman grabs him and it says, hey, you, you will carry the cross. And he's like, no, I don't want to, I'm, I'm not going to get involved here. So, so the Roman again threatens him and eventually he's like, okay, I'll, I'll carry the cross. So, so he picks up the cross from the shoulders of the Lord and he, he starts to carry it. But, but the, Jesus was so tortured that the blood was all over the cross. And as he picked it up, some of the blood just came, came on him and just realized that he's carrying this cross now and Jesus is going to be crucified on this cross. 
so the Romans lead them up uh, onto Golgotha, and um, Jesus and the other guys are nailed to the cross, and they just drop him dead standing. There Jesus is like, oh, crucified. And he's, he's looking at, at Jesus, just standing, uh, just standing in front of the cross, looking at Jesus. And then he looks at Jesus' face, and he sees just so much love and compassion and tenderness towards these people. And he hears Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. A little bit later, he says, he hears Jesus saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he dies. And he's still just processing everything that's going on here. And he says, it's as, it's as if he's being awoken from a terrible nightmare by two little hands tucking at his shirt. And as he looks down to what is going on, he looks and he sees there are his two sons tucking at his shirt. And, and they've got tears in their eyes. They're, they're completely distraught. And they, they just immediately say, Daddy, Daddy, please forgive us. We have lost the lamb that you taught us to look after. And then they say, but, but Daddy, what did we just experience? What, what just happened here? And, and who is this man that's on the cross? So the dad picks up his two sons and he holds them in his, them in his arms. And he, he turns towards the cross and he says, Look, sons, there is the lamb. That is the lamb that was slain for our sins. Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb, was slain for our sins so that we can be in right standing with God. He he has taken everything upon himself, all of our sin, all of our brokenness, everything that um, we're struggling with, all of these addictions that we have to to dopamine and our own thing. He's taken it upon himself on the cross and took the punishment for that. And then with that, he offers us freedom. He offers us life by putting our trust and our faith in him. May we not forget the realities of the cross. The cross was the greatest spectacle of all of history. All of the attention of the unseen realm was focused on that singular moment in history. Both heaven and hell, every, all the attention was focused on Jesus on the cross. How can we so easily forget that? How can we so easily not be enamored with the glory of God anymore? So I pray that our eyes would be, eyes of our hearts would be enlightened again to be able to see that our hearts and our, our entire beings would be driven to push in through the discomfort of seeking God to find him. Because he says, if you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. So yeah, with that, I'm going to just close in prayer and then give back to you and Christian. So yeah, Father, I, I thank you for, for sending us your son, Jesus, so that we can know life life with you, Lord, because this is true eternal life, Lord, to know you, to know you closely and intimately, Lord, to, to know the realities of who you are in our lives, Lord. So, Lord, I pray again just for a newness of vision, Lord, that we can see you more clearly, that our hearts would respond more appropriately, Lord, to your glory. Lord, I pray that there would be just a humility also in our hearts, Lord, to lay things down which you call us to lay down, Lord. We won't hold on with like a tight-fisted grip, Lord, to things that you say, let go of these things. They are not helpful. They're not beneficial. Lord, may we really grow closer to you, grow, grow closer in all the things that we do, Lord, to experience you moment by moment as we renew our minds, Lord, and focus our attention on you. Because we love you, Lord. You've given us your life, and we've been forgiven much. So, Lord, may we love much in return. In Jesus' name. Amen. If there's anyone here that don't know this Jesus he's talking about, maybe just respond. If there's anyone that wants to to experience just that love and that compassion that Jesus came 
Jesus is for us. When Jesus is 